Podcast listeners, you've listened to the podcast. Now you want the chance to come on the program yourself. So here it is. Do you remember those books, Choose Your Own Adventure, where you would pick where to go next and follow that story? Well, help us flesh out the Vitbuckle Society Complication Session at the annual meeting in March 2020 by submitting your surgical videos of your complications in vitriol surgery. These videos can be narrated or anonymous with the description to mclufas at gmail.com. That's M-K-L-U-F-A-S at gmail.com. We all learn more from reviewing our mistakes as groups and with our colleagues. So this is a great learning opportunity. And two big things. The top five entries will be shown during the meeting and discussed by a panel discussion. But more importantly, if you're one of the top five entries, we'll invite you to come on the podcast for a one-on-one interview to discuss the case and learning points. The winning entry out of the five will then win a special Bitbuckle Society buckle. So send your entries to mclufas at gmail.com. That's M-K-L-U-F-A-S at gmail.com. Thank you. Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 207, it is our first episode of 2020. 2020 is an important year in ophthalmology, and I'm here with the January 2020 preview of Retinal Physician. Retinal Physician can be found online at retinalphysician.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A-L-P-H-Y-S-I-C-I-A-N.com for free. And here we discuss some of the articles in a jumping off point for discussion. We discuss use of EMR in imaging systems, swept source OCT applications in macular degeneration, intraoperative OCT applications, and finally end with the discussion of optogenetics. I'm joined by Drs. Farina Ali and Dr. Daniel Chow. Remember, financial disclosures for all participants can be found in the episode description. Also, you can find a link to go to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website where you can claim CME credits for this and many other podcast episodes. So keep that in mind as you build your CME profile for 2020 for licensure and certification. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be back uh, with this uh, preview of the January 2020 edition of Retinal Physician. Joining me for this podcast are two retinal specialists. First, in alphabetical order, Dr. Farina Ali from Dallas, Texas. Farina, welcome back. Thanks so much, Jay. And Dr. Daniel Chow from San Diego, California. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Jay, for having me again. So, um, as usual, Retinal Physician kind of discussions. We're not here to kind of break down the nitty-gritty. These articles are generally not peer-reviewed. They're generally kind of review articles about a topic. And what we're going to do is just kind of use those as jumping off points for discussion. If you want to read the articles, they're available at retinalphysician.com, all for free online. So the first article that we're going to kind of talk about is this article by uh, Moutre, uh, which is uh, is titled Integrated Diagnostic Retinal Imaging and Electronic Medical Records, subtitled Efforts to Incorporate Retinal Morphology Data into EMRs Could Improve the Efficiency of Conventional Clinical Diagnostic and Treatment Pathways. Um, Essentially, what they described here was how we're all using EMR, and there's this big movement towards artificial intelligence 
to analyze imaging, including OCT, fundus photography, angiograms, and OCT angiograms as we go forward in the future. And if we had incorporated automated image analysis with our EMR, this could offer some huge benefits in terms of not only patient outcomes, but efficiency. Uh, so this is more of an article talking about novel applications, not necessarily anything concrete. Though there is some data, obviously, on artificial intelligence uh, and using artificial intelligence in different disease states to analyze data. Farina, I'll let you start. So your thoughts and reactions, do you think this is something we'll be doing routinely as we go forward in the future? I, I do think it is. I mean, they talk a little bit about automated image analysis, which has been around for a long time. So like the Jocelyn Diabetes Center out of Boston has been using this for a long time for their diabetic retinopathy screening program. It sounds like it's been done with the Drusen as well, which they comment on the high sensitivity and specificity of um, those software programs. I think this um, movement towards <clears throat> buying kind of EMR data in conjunction with imaging in bulk is sort of geared towards creating, you know, smart technology that, you know, through volume can be predictive and prognostic. And I think we're definitely heading in that direction. Also, when I think of those sorts of purchases are, you know, funded by folks that have a lot of money, in other words, industry and other sort of high payers, I think that can give us the volume that's needed. Um, the, and, and in the small time that I spent in industry, it, it's kind of amazing to learn how much um, imaging is actually needed. Um, so I think it's very cool. I think it's going to happen. I was um, reassured. I mean, they talk a little bit of, in the article about interoperability and some of the challenges with fundus photography crossing over across modalities and across um, different cameras and things like that. Whereas OCT and OCTA is less susceptible to that, although still, and I think a lot, there's a lot of meat there, and I think it's re really exciting. I think it'll happen, and probably pretty soon. Dan, do you see foresee any problems or potential issues with this, or is it going to be smooth sailing going forward? So I think this article is really hinting at the future where we've really integrated our retinal imaging, which is uh, almost always in some kind of hack system with our EMR. And I think the idea is that we pull up with an EMR the patient's records, the retinal imaging effortlessly comes up at the same time as we scroll through our OCTs that there's going to be automated analysis that will alert us uh, about useful features and that will help guide our, um, uh, guide our management. And I think really the idea is that this would really help us with kind of real-time decision-making on patients based on imaging, um, which we can all agree is a, a huge need. Um, I would say we're still a long ways from there just in terms of the capabilities of our current retinal imaging systems. Um, I've just experienced a lot of difficulty just with EMRs in terms of linking just to be able to bring up the patient's records um, at the same time. And um, just with some basic functionality in terms of viewing the images um, that, uh, that I've had a lot of issues. And then, you know, if we're talking about to be able to do automated uh, image analysis, uh, we have to be we have to do uh, good segmentation. And I think there's still we're still a ways off from really having very smooth and robust automatic segmentation um, before really being able to get these computer aided uh, analyses. So I agree. I think that's certainly the way that will be in the future. I think it will be fantastic. Uh, I think it's still a little bit a ways away. 
So I don't know if you either of you watch Family Guy, but there's this segment um, that Peter Griffin runs in one of the episodes called What Really Grinds My Gears. And I'm going to say this. You know what really grinds my gears? When your pack system and your EMR are so slow that that's the rate limiting step in your clinic. And I don't think it's actually a software issue, right? I think it's, and they reference this in the article, I think it's a hardware issue, unfortunately. And we have, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to curse on air, but we have some pretty, you know, not amazing (laughs) computers that aren't updated as often as they should. Even, Even at a great academic institution, there's just hardware issues with the image storage right. and pulling images. And we see that, at least we see it. We use Merge as our pack system. When I try to pull an image from a, a week ago, it pulls up very quickly. When I try to pull images from seven years ago, it takes a lot longer. And, that, and when I looked into it, it's because they're stored on different servers. And so it's pulling from a different data bank that's, that's a little, I don't know, I don't, not enough technical enough person, but it's a little more difficult to access. So it takes a little longer for it to load. And maybe it's an older data bank. And the other thing is our images are amazing now. They're so high res. If you get an Octo's image, it's really mm-hmm. high resolution. You get this really nice wet image you can zoom in. But there's a problem with it because it takes it's a huge image. So it takes time for it to load sometimes. So sometimes the thing that takes the longest is the image pulls up, but it's completely out of focus because the computer's grinding its gears trying to make that image come into focus. And you're sitting there trying to look at a fluorescent angiogram, look frame by frame, and it takes a long time to load. And and that's a hardware issue. And I'm sure it's not unique to where I practice. I'm sure that's an issue that is going to present. It's only going to get worse as these images get larger and better mm-hmm. and higher res. So that's like a problem that we're not addressing, right? We're not talking. We have We still have major hardware slash storage issues with all these images. If everyone's getting these huge images, at some point, we have a data storage problem, right, Farina? Definitely. I also think I've yet to see PACS inter- a single PAX integration program that w- felt satisfactory in any way. And I don't really understand right. kind of why that is or historically why that occurs or why, you know, we can't parallel the radiology world. I don't know about that. I don't know the costs involved and all that stuff. There must be a good reason around it, but there's never been a situation where I'm like, oh, cool, this tax runs great. It's more like, how can I do this on the machine, which feels like a historic move to do, like, because why would you have to do that? But I would much rather walk down the hall than sort of deal with that kind of well, thing. And, so and, yes, we're, yeah. we are a long ways away for sure. Yeah. Well, and you're referencing yeah, something. Yeah. Dan, I'm, uh, before you go, I, I, she's referencing something also we've talked about, which is sometimes the PAX machine has limitations that you don't get with the innate software that comes with whatever machine you're using. For for example, I like using my Heidelberg software to look at my Heidelberg OCs over Merge because mm-hmm. it will actually automatically mm-hmm. map the prior OCT and today's OCT together. So when I scroll, I get both to scroll together versus PAX doesn't do that. I've got to go back and forth and kind of compare back and forth. So it takes me a little longer to kind of make sure that there's no major changes. For example, if I'm looking for subretinal fluid or intraretinal fluid in a patient getting mm-hmm. injections for macular generation. Um, with OCTA, mm-hmm. I find it a lot less helpful now than I'm attending where I see the images in PAX scanned in, where I only get the four cuts that the machine is chosen to segment versus when I was a fellow and we had the machine in the office, I would just walk over and go scroll through it and look at every cut, I got a lot more out of it. And PAX doesn't pull all of those cuts. So it's the, that's the same reason I don't necessarily order many serious OCTs, even though we have that available, because the way it scans into PAX isn't, doesn't give you all the cuts. And then the way 
and we don't have the software on our computers. I end up just using Heidelberg. So Dan, these are other issues that come up when you start using a PAC system. They're great in terms of pulling imaging from different machines, but then you lose some information when you do that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Jay. And I think this also, you know, grinds my gears to no end as, as well as the clinic. And, and I agree, there's no kind of consensus software that's out there or even, uh, and, and as you mentioned, the hardware issue is exceedingly complex and is extremely variable depending on, you know, your specific clinic IT setup. Um, but I think universally, it's unsatisfactory. Well, and then the final issue we don't have to get into because we should move forward, but then you have a great data bank and a server. What happens when that server crashes in the middle of your clinic? I mean, we've all unfortunately been in that situation mm -hmm. or heard of that situation. I mean, that that's basically, it's sending your clinic back to the Stone Age now because everything is kind of routed through one place, makes it more efficient. But if that one place is not working, then you're sort of, you know, between a rock and a hard place and the patient's looking at you and you don't know what to do because you can't access the images easily. Um, so that's when you, you can usually go back to the machine and look. But if that's not where the prior images were stored, then you're not getting any prior information. So that's a whole separate, you know, can of worms to deal with. And, and just not to completely bash the idea, I think still with us is extremely appealing and will have incredible use in clinic when we get it to work. You know, you can imagine say we're in clinic and, you know, we have something that can automatically highlight, let's say, a PAM lesion, which is very easy to miss when we're scrolling to the lesion. And, you know, having a, some computer-aided analysis that helps to highlight subtle features that we may necessarily pick up within a 20-second scan of the images um, would be extremely uh, helpful and, and help augment efficiency in clinic, for sure. So the next article we're going to talk about is titled Update on Interoperative OCT for Picture Retinal Surgery, a New Technology Impacting Surgical Technique Management and Decision-Making. Um, I said check it uh, and the team from Chicago, um, as well as the team in Baltimore, Sid's an associate now with um, the Elman Retina Group out in Baltimore. Uh, and again, they, they go through kind of the history of how interoperative OCT was developed. Originally, it was handheld from Duke, then microscope mounted, and finally, this microscope integrate system. There's three systems available, the Zeiss Rescan, the Hog Straight Surgical IOCT, and then the InFocus system, which can be worked with Leica microscopes. They talk about the Pioneer Trial, which was out of um, Cleveland Clinic and other locations, kind of looking at and Discover Trial, looking at the applications of intraoperative OCT, and they go through the different applications. And we've actually discussed many of these previously, but just to kind of to, to mm -hmm. bring this conversation to a new place and an interesting place, uh, and I'll let Farina kind of start. We, I think we all implicitly, if, if this is like the classic answer, you know, we people ask us, what about intraoperative OCT? And we all like, well, it's not ready for prime time, but you know, one day it will be, and it'll be critical to what we're doing because it gives us this information and that information, etc. What do you think, though, I mean, how do you think it's going to change? I just think that it's going to, it, people talk about us operating in kind of a different sort of manner. Like we're used to looking down at the retina as we operate. And it, it, eventually, you can imagine, we're going to be looking at the retina in cross-section as we operate. Same as we used to look at fundus photos and look at the contact lens and look for edema. Now we look at OCTs okay. in the clinic. Mm -hmm. But that's different than operating mm -hmm. and changing the way we operate. What do you think the learning curve will be to that? Like, like I'm curious how easy that will be because I've used it integrated, um, but I don't use it dynamically. I usually use it statically to kind of look at something because it's pretty challenging without someone running the OCT to be dynamic and do things while you're running the OCT. Plus, at least the rescan we use, you can't drive the OCT and the scope at the same time. So it kind of puts a little limitation on what you can do. 
But let's say we get to a point where we're peeling Matt Coles and we're looking at that OCT. I I mean, eventually you'd have to figure there would have to be a 3D kind of component. Otherwise, it's going to be a little challenging to use, right? Definitely. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think the microscope integrated that I've used, the resolution is can be not so great. I think it's hard in my mind to kind of incorporate the, as you're describing, like sort of the NFOS kind of operating that we do, as opposed to the cross-sectional interpretation in the way that the current technology kind of exists and is viewed by the surgeon. I think that that is there's so much of a reliance on the modality that you're already used to. So I think if, if, you know, we end up in a situation where it's more of a, you know, heads up display 3d viewing system that altogether kind of encompasses a new way to operate. I feel like that to me makes a bit more sense. I think the, the former way it's like, well, let's rely on the way that we've known how to do things. And I think even in this article, the changes that are made um, based on findings that are seen through intraoperative OCT are often um, things that surge, those th- similar decisions surgeons can make when acting most conservatively. Like, in other words, can this VMT lead to a hole? Well, you know, without using intraoperative OCT, you can make that determination and put in gas or whatever. Like, you can, a lot of these steps that are described here kind of parallel, well, how can I act most conservatively? And that margin that's given where the decision-making changes is really a small proportion of patients. So I think that, you know, all of that to say that I think that if it's an altogether kind of new experience, um, I think the potential there is greater. Um, I, it's hard to see kind of that right now without seeing the integration with heads-up display. I mean, a couple of interesting things were also mentioned in terms of, you know, if we move more towards retinal prostheses or gene therapy, subretinal delivery, where that's going to be, things like that. We have been delivering TPA subretinally for, for some time, but are there going to be specifics around size, geography, things like that, that, you know, can be enhanced by intraoperative OCT is interesting to me. Um, so those were some thoughts that I had. I would be curious to see more of an integrated model and less of a 3D integrated model as opposed to a um, microscope integrated model for my, my practice. And, and Dan, not to make this in the latest episode of Point Counterpoint, but what about the practical issue where intraoperative OCT scopes are expensive, and if you're out in practice and you have a scope that works, your ASC doesn't have much incentive to invest in a new scope that has intraoperative OCT integration, especially, unfortunately, if there isn't necessarily a higher reimbursement rate or a dramatic increase in efficacy or efficiency tied to that. So how is intraoperative OCT going to be incorporated? Is this mostly going to be at academic institutions or trial centers? Is this something that will get a significant market share? It will just take 15 or 20 years for you know your old scope to break and then for you to invest in a new one? I mean, how do you see this panning out as the, the technology gets better? I think those are all excellent points. And, uh, and I would agree with your point right now in terms of the value add to um, integrated uh, intraoperative OCT for the regular retina specialist, I would say there's very little value added. And especially from a financial standpoint, again, again, very little value. I think really the greatest utility of intraoperative OCT um, that will probably, that's here now and probably will be around for the next couple of years is, as Farina mentioned, it's really better understanding the subretinal delivery process. Um, I think especially with these gene therapy trials in which there's subretinal delivery, I think we're still kind of very in the early stages of understanding 
you know, what is the best way to deliver it? What is kind of the kinetics of how fast we should be delivering, you know, these drugs without causing damage to the retina or to allow for best transduction of the virus? And I think this is where um, getting real-time dynamic intraoperative OCT data, number one, first to um, make sure that you're in the subretinal space, which, of course, you don't necessarily need an intraoperative OCT to show, but I think more from a, from a research standpoint, understanding kind of the kinetics of the blab, what it's doing to the outer and inner retina um, at the area of the injection site, as well as the surrounding areas. I think that will be very useful going forward in terms of identifying best practices as to how we do these subretinal injections for maximum transduction of gene therapy viruses, as well as preserving health of these photoreceptors. And I know that groups that use it, there's a lot of very interesting kind of counterintuitive findings, um, especially I think up at the KCI Institute, I think they've reported a lot of their intraoperative OCT findings. So I think this is really where the utility of it is now, which again is limited to um, academic centers that are really doing clinical trials um, with subretinal, uh, subretinal injection as being a, a key feature. Um, you know, beyond that, I, you know, I don't really see a practical utility of intraoperative OCT within the next five years. Um, you know, as you mentioned, again, I think it's going to require a totally different way of, of operating. Uh, you know, I certainly use the Ingenuity 3D system in which, you know, that's going from, um, from soap to a 3D screen. And that's, has been a fairly seamless transition, I think, because we're still operating in that on-FOS mode. But, you know, just imagine if you're really going to be operating in, let's, let's say, switch to an intraoperative OCT mode where you're just looking at, say, this OCT um, and operating solely based on those cues, that's a very different way of operating. We may even need to have, like, uh, you know, robotic hold it, you know, because now you're looking at micron-level resolution and, you know, in terms of trimmer and other things like that. Um, but that's a very operating if you're solely, solely using OCT as, as, your, as your cue. Um, and, and as you said, I think that, that'll still be a while before it's really um, realized, I think, in the operating room. So another tech, the kind of feel like the corollary to intraoperative OCT in the clinic is OCTA. The OCTA is a little bit ahead. And the next article is about swept source OCT. It's, a, it's from here at Baskin Palmer, Anita Burkin. Who's working with Dr. Rosenfeld as one of the medical retina fellows, and along with Dr. Harry Flynn, wrote this article about kind of the applications of swept source OCTA, which for macular neovascularization in the setting of a non-exudative AMD, uh, and I think it's this is a fascinating kind of concept. And we're not, we, you know, I think some of the similar points mm-hmm. about the applicability and and maybe the general use of this technology right now for retina specialists maybe doesn't make sense, but let, Farina, let's, they kind of talk about how they find these neovascular membranes in non-exudative disease, and a significant percentage of these end up being active. However, in their calculation, the risk-benefit of injecting these patients just because you see something within the absence of exudation doesn't make sense. It's better still to wait until they have symptomatic exudation. Any comments or thoughts on mm-hmm. this? It's very interesting. And, and again, their, their valid point is that you don't have a definite kind of endpoint to stopping treatment if the membrane just stays there and doesn't change and then exudation never develops, then what do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think this is very fascinating. I think has been a source of discussion as to what does this mean? What do we do with it? How do we act upon it? I like that they kind of offered their um, you know recommendations here and some kind of risk assessment as well. I mean, I I think a couple of things that 
to me are interesting about it. One, I think there is the potential for a lot of clinical trial data to be revealing in this regard, as well as correlating it with um, genetics. You know, as as time goes on, we learn more and more about um, ge- you know sort of genetic subtypes and understanding AMD a bit better. And so, on that token, we can understand gene therapy a bit better. So, I would be very curious about understanding the genetics for these patients. First of all, and then secondarily, I mean, I think the question with OCTA, and I'd love to know what you guys think, has always been that it is a hard thing to follow. And certainly in this case, you know, we're, you know, we're talking about something that you wouldn't even really treat. And then the question of, oh, if you do treat, then what do you make of it going forward since it's not exudating? But I mean, I think that's an interesting question around the utility of OCTA, it's, it's super duper helpful in our patients that have nearly, you know, kind of atrophic retinas or baseline essays were hard to interpret. Their follow-up essays are hard to interpret. Is there a new CNV? That's super helpful. And I'm excited to learn more about the subtleties around how the CNV, how, what we can learn more about how the CNV changes, um, you know, with treatment and what that might mean from a prognostic standpoint. So all of that is very interesting to me, very fascinating. And I'm glad they touched upon these macular non-exudative um, CNVs. Dan, Farina did a great yeah, job I, kind of describing that. Yeah, go ahead. Your thoughts? Yeah, I don't I don't really have that much uh, to add to add to that. I think I agree with all of Farina's points. You know, I think one thing that's very interesting is that they do hint that actually this technology advance with the swept source versus the spectral domain actually gives us this resolution and added 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 feature to really visualize the subclinical um, non-exudative lesions uh, in a meaningful way. And so I think that that's kind of an interesting first point that really the longer wavelength of the laser allows deeper penetration mm-hmm. and also the faster scan schemes really gives us better, um, you know, uh, resolution to really resolve things. So um, I, it sounds like, uh, you know, I know Phil Roosevelt, he's definitely a, an advocate like of the swept source over over the spectral domain, and I think for these types of reasons. And, and I definitely agree with Karina. I think now we're observing some of the, you know, be- vessels that we haven't been able to see before. And I think the question, you know, what does this mean? Is this a precursor to, you know, exudative disease? Is this a protective effect, you know, and, and how do we, how do we segregate those two things, you know, marker for, for various clinical trials. I think these are all open, open areas that, that deserve um, further investigation. Um, And so I think it's, I think it'll be really interesting to see, um, see where these things, uh, where these things go at this point um, with further work. I mean, I I agree at this point, I think it's, it's still not an actionable item because you know, once we uh, once we declare someone as having exudative AMD, you've essentially committed them to a lifetime of injections, and uh, and and so I think you know really uh, at least for me, really being confident that that is the case, um, it makes sense to to wait and see you know really what do these sub uh, subclinical non-exudative lesions uh, really mean. And I think as a correlate, I think one thing that'll be really interesting is also to explore kind of also these changes in um, diabetic retinopathy, especially as we get more wide-field OCTs, especially these swept source OCTs. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, really well said. And, and I think the thing that is, is well-referenced here is we have all these therapies on the horizon. We'll, 
doesn't make sense maybe to inject anti-VEGF for every month in these patients, but is this a good patient to get a VEGF gene therapy, right? So is this someone who, mm-hmm. given the percentage, I mean, they talk about the percentage of these lesions that exude, it was at 24 months, risk was 20, 34% of these eyes had exudation. That's a third. That's a pretty significant risk versus 6% without 13.6 times greater. Maybe this is someone who's a candidate for a one-time therapy that is quote-unquote curative if we have that uh, in our fantasy world that's not too far away. But moving last, mm-hmm. and, and this kind of ties into our last <laughs> one. So Russ Van Gelder wrote this article about optogenetics and photoswitch therapies for vision restoration. I, I'll be honest, I had some idea of optogenetics. I thought this was a fascinating article. He just kind of, he talks mm-hmm. about just, Me too. Yeah. yeah. T- taking, mm-hmm. I mean, we all know there are different cells in the retina. We have photoreceptors, we have ganglion cells, we have bipolar cells. And the photoreceptors are damaged in, in several diseases. For example, AMD and RP are kind of the two diseases he kind of focuses on. And if you can get non-photosensitive cells, such as a ganglion cell, to become photosensitive by activating a photoswitch genetically, what could that mean for these patients? And this is a, a different way of kind of approaching a problem, right? So people talk about retinal transplantation for these patients. We have prostheses, such as the Argus in the past, and then the next generation, the Orion, for kind of a prosthesis that stimulates the existing ganglion cells or stimulates the visual cortex directly. But the question now is, can you just change the makeup of the retina, make the ganglion cells photosensitive? Farina, your reactions when you read this, what you kind of see is the ceiling effect on this? What do you think? Sure. I mean, I just thought it was a fascinating read and just very clearly well outlined. Um, again, he, as you mentioned, it's a very specific approach. Um, it's, it's trying to get at a situation where the photoreceptors are already gone. Can we convert the remaining cells? I mean, I, I mean, I think there's been a lot of great work obviously in this area. And I like that there are two, two pathways that are kind of a potential option here. What I found to be a couple of things that I took away from it is it was a reminder to me at what a exciting and fascinating time we're in in retina. And then I was really struck by his last statement, which is we should be seeing this within the next decade in our clinic, which to me was like kind of a remarkable thought. And so I'd be curious to ask Dan, who has a PhD in a lot. And has probably you are Dr. Daniel Chow times two. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, in this sort of work, what is your understanding around like feasibility and, and just your general gestalt from, from reading this? Yeah, uh, thanks, Farina. So I think this area, optogenetics, especially the photo switches, is a, is a, it's, again, fascinating area. It's also an area of personal interest. And I've actually spent some time working with Richard Kramer, who's one of the people mentioned in this work with the photo switches, actually, on doing some mm-hmm. uh, experiments with some of the small molecules. So I think this is a very interesting area. I think, I think Wes Van Delder uh, did a fantastic job of outlining uh, kind of the technologies and the limitations and the, and the considerations. Um, and, and so we just kind of break some of these down, you know, just like Jay said, you know, if we're thinking about, we're thinking about how do we, the, the whole idea, the whole strategy here is to bypass the dead photoreceptors and make other cells, either retinal ganglion cells or perhaps bipolar cells, photosensitive. And so there's a couple ways to do that. You know, one is actually to use um, uh, photosensitive um, molecules 
Um, and two of them mentioned that they hear are this channel rhodopsin and halo rhodopsin. And essentially, these are actually uh, ion channels that are found in algae that are sensitive to light. And, you know, mm-hmm. so people put these bacterial channels and in specific cells, either under using like a retinal ganglion cell promoter or bipolar cell promoter, and they can show that, you know, they can stimulate these cells and that these lead to um, restoration of some light, light-mediated behaviors in animals. Um, and, and in fact, some of them are now moving into human trials that, that they mentioned um, with, uh, with RetroSense, which, uh, which was then acquired by Allergan, um, though that data hasn't been read out. Mm-hmm. So that's one way. Mm-hmm. Um, then the other way that's even more kind of crazy is that what if you put in, you know, the, the photosensitive pigments, which are the rhodopsin, right? What if you put the rhodopsin protein into the retinal ganglion cell or a bipolar cell? Well, from a scientific standpoint, you wouldn't think that this would work because it doesn't have the rest of the visual transduction machinery. Like there's this whole G-protein coupled receptor pathway, if you remember from biochemistry. So like there would be no thought that this would actually work. But it turns out it actually does in animals. Crazy. And it's thought that, you know, this rhodopsin is sensing light and it's coupling to other random G-coupled protein receptors to, to mediate the stimulation. And so people are optimizing that. And this is actually will be a, uh, a reality. There's a company, uh, Videre Pharmaceuticals, which is, you know, I think going forward using a gene therapy technique to, um, to transduce a medium range uh, opsin protein uh, into, into either retinal ganglion cells or bipolar cells. And it's really a lot of the work from, from uh, John Flannery and Ehud uh, Isakoff at, at Berkeley. So I think this is very exciting. And I think this will be in clinical trials within the next, you know, three to five years. Um, and then the other approach has small molecules that are light sensitive that can open ion channels. Uh, and again, kind of very simple approach, but instead of using a gene, you're using a small molecule. And so um, Richard Kramer's lab at Berkeley has created such molecules, which are kind of amazing that they exist. So they have basically this photosensitive motif that when they're hit with certain wavelengths of light, they will isomerize just like a rhodopsin protein. And that, that isomerization can, can actually open native ion channels within the cell to result in depolarization. Um, and so, um, you know, so there've been very nice papers in animals, mice showing that this is, um, this works. I know they're working very hard to try to bring this to humans. Um, you know, again, the advantages of this over the gene therapy is that, you know, it's an injection can deliver intravitreally. It probably has greater penetration throughout the whole retina. Uh, again, some of the disadvantages is that you would have to give it repeatedly. There's toxicity, um, you know, you know, et cetera. But these are both very fascinating and almost like right on the verge of like kind of science fiction in terms of, you know, making mm-hmm. blind people see just like the retina. Right. Um, and again, I think, I think in the article, it talks about, you know, well, really what are kind of, is this going to be a viable therapy in the long term? And I think that's a question mm-hmm. we really don't know. I think the question is, you know, what we really want to do is how much vision can we give these people, right? right. I think, right. you know, that's... from, from Mark mm-hmm. Mind's work, we, we can yeah. show that we can stimulate the cells and they can see something, but really to the point where it becomes, right. you know, how useful from a functional standpoint. Does this allow someone to walk independently? Does it allow them to cook? Does it allow them to read? You know, at what kind of resolution of vision can we get? And I think this is, completely unclear. And I would say, you know, because we're bypassing all the intricate visual processing that occurs in the retina, you know, I would think that the resolution would be very small, but I think Mm -hmm. this will be an iterative technology and we will certainly learn more as these human trials, you know, I I think it'll be super fascinating, you know, if we get to a point where, you know, what actually will a person see if you put 
like a rhodopsin protein in the retinal ganglion cells. Or if you're using a small molecule to, you know, I, I think what will actually be the visual precept and how much can the person adapt? Um, and, and so I think this is completely unknown, but super exciting. And I, and I agree, I think something that will be, you know, I think we will be hearing about it uh, in the next, uh, you know, I would say in the next three to five years. So certainly be on the lookout for it. Well, Dan, and you referenced cool. that, Very that, exciting. That the mm -hmm. thing that we were thinking about was resolution is what if it gets to the point in the future where we have to pick between a very successful thing that leaves you with a low resolution image or a less successful option that gives you the opportunity for very useful fine vision. Um, and I think it all will depend on the disease state and the scenario and the risks involved. But, you know, it's just it's interesting to think about the pathways. This pathway does can give you vision. It's just it shouldn't give you and I say should because we never know for sure. It shouldn't give you, as you said, the highest resolution vision. There is a ceiling here to what this can do, given what we think we know about the intricacy of the visual pathway and kind of how it's not a one-to-one -one -one connection, photoreceptor bipolar cell, ganglion cell. Like there, there's a lot of complexity and there's different mapping depending on where in the retina you are. This is not going to get you all of that back. Um, versus maybe something like stem cell transplantation, retinal regeneration, things that may offer that ceiling depending on how they evolve. But, you know, like you said, it, we don't know. We don't know what the end result is. So it is fascinating and, and really interesting. Farina, any, any thoughts before we break? Right. No, just to, just to also mention, as, as you guys both mentioned, that this treatment could potentially co-opt remaining vision. So as you're saying, it can be kind of an interesting trade-off, but still super fascinating and exciting. Dan, Farida, thank you for joining me. Happy holidays to you and, you and yours, and thanks for getting this done. Uh, listeners don't know how much effort it took to get this episode done. <laughs> um, and uh, we didn't, no one got struck by lightning, Plane so that was good. And automobiles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a good, uh, it's a good holiday movie, too. What's your favorite Christmas movie, Dan? Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know, I was just thinking about this. You know, the movie with Nicolas Cage where he's like this family man banker and then loses it all? Yeah. Oh, family man? <laughs> really? Oh, it's family movie? man is my Interesting. favorite. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Home Alone yes. is my favorite Christmas movie. Yes, me too. Mine too. Definitely. Okay, Home Alone. Yes, that's a good thing. Yeah. But every 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 brown yeah. kid in the mid to late nineties watched Home Alone <laughs> over, and I don't know why. Those are are very vicarious stepping out. But you talk to any South Asian kid who grew up in America in the mid to late nineties, Home Alone is their jam. That was like an annual thing at Blockbuster. Yeah. So. The young fellows don't know what Blockbuster is. Uh, it was a place where you could go get these things called cassettes and watch them. Uh, all right, guys. Have a great Christmas. Thank you again. Uh, good night. You too. Thanks for having me, Dave. Bye. Bye-bye. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. All 207 episodes, including this one, can be found there sorted by category. We have a blog on our website. You can click on the links to subscribe and get email updates with the latest episodes. You can also find us on Facebook or on Twitter, at Retina Podcast. And you can also find us in the Apple Store on your mobile device or Android Store if you have an Android device. 
We love getting feedback on things we can do better and things we've been already doing well. Many of our best episodes over the past three years have come from listener ideas. So if you have an idea for an episode, something you want to hear, please reach out and we'll be happy to look it over. And if it's a good idea, sometimes again, some of our best episodes come from those ideas. Thank you again to Drs. Farina Ali and Dr. Daniel Chow for joining me. Thank you to Jen Ford and the team at Pentavision who provide these articles at Retinal Physician in advance. Thank you to Dr. Louis Kai, Dr. Angela Chang, and Dr. Michael Venicasa, who handled the production and the social media for this episode and all other episodes. And finally, thank you listeners for what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you have inspired here over the last three years and leading into 2020. I uh, hope, wish you all best of luck, good health, and uh, success with all of your plans for this year. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>